0: Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com Places to go to find cool slippers and even cooler cult film t-shirts BunnySlippers.com, FoundItemClothing.com Whether it be zombie slippers or zombie t-shirts They've got you covered Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast dedicated to giving you spooky stories gothic stories science fiction horror whatever we can get our hands on we've been doing themed months we'll see if that works in the next year but hey so far so good and we've been having experts on just like andrew grace who will be joining us like last week at the end of this week or the beginning of next week to talk about the bronte sisters and this week is part two of jane eyre So, yeah, that's chapters, what, 12 through 26, I think? I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly show. You can join us for that, where we talk about the Cthulhu Mythos with experts like Ken Hite and Adam Scott Glancy. And also join us for sometime during the month. We always have a cool, cool special from David Heath, whether it be from People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of the Universe, will be there. And you can check him out at davescorneroftheuniverse.com, or just Google it. And thank you so much. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you do that. And also check out pgttcm.com. Check out the t-shirts and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and all that other good stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Google it. All right, here we go. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host... Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton only on Monster Kid Radio
1: Recording by Elizabeth Clett Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, Chapter 35. He did not leave for Cambridge the next day as he had said he would he deferred his departure a whole week, and during that time he made me feel what severe punishment a good yet stern, a conscientious yet implacable man, can inflict on one who has offended him. Without one overt act of hostility, one upbraiding word, he contrived to impress me momently with the conviction that I was put beyond the pale of his favour not that St. John harboured a spirit of unchristian vindictiveness, not that he would have injured a hair of my head, if it had been fully in his power to do so. Both by nature and principle, he was superior to the mean gratification of vengeance. He had forgiven me for saying I scorned him in his love, but he had not forgotten the words, and as long as he and I lived, he never would forget them. I saw by his look, when he turned to me, that they were always written on the air between me and him. Whenever I spoke, they sounded in my voice to his ear, and their echo toned every answer he gave me. He did not abstain from conversing with me. He even called me as usual, each morning, to join him at his desk. And I fear the corrupt man within him had a pleasure unimparted to, and unshared by, the pure Christian, in evincing, with what skill he could, while acting and speaking apparently just as usual, extract from every deed and every phrase the spirit of interest and approval which had formerly communicated a certain austere charm to his language and manner. To me he was in reality become no longer flesh, but marble. His eye was a cold, bright, blue gem, his tongue a speaking instrument—nothing more. All this was torture to me—refined, lingering torture. It kept up a slow fire of indignation and a trembling trouble of grief, which harassed and crushed me altogether. I felt how if I were his wife, this good man, pure as the deep sunless source, could soon kill me without drawing from my veins a single drop of blood, or receiving on his own crystal conscience the faintest stain of crime. Especially I felt this when I made any attempt to propitiate him. No Ruth met my Ruth. He experienced no suffering from estrangement, no yearning after reconciliation. And though more than once my fast-falling tears blistered the page over which we both bent, they produced no more effect on him than if his heart had been really a matter of stone or metal. To his sisters, meantime, he was somewhat kinder than usual, as if afraid that mere coldness would not sufficiently convince me how completely I was banished and banned, he added the force of contrast. And this I am sure he did not by force, but on principle." The night before he left home, happening to see him walking in the garden about sunset, and remembering, as I looked at him, that this man, alienated as he now was, had once saved my life, and that we were near relations, I was moved to make a last attempt to regain his friendship. I went out and approached him as he stood leaning over the little gate. I spoke to the point at once. St. John, I am unhappy because you are still angry with me. Let us be friends.' I hope we are friends," was the unmoved reply, while he stood watching the rising of the moon, which he had been contemplating as I approached. No, St. John, we are not friends as we were. You know that." Are we not? That is wrong. For my part, I wish you no ill, and all good. I believe you, St. John, for I am sure you are incapable of wishing any one ill. But as I am your kinswoman, I should desire somewhat more of affection than that sort of general philanthropy you extend to mere strangers." "'Of course,' he said, "'your wish is reasonable, and I am far from regarding you as a stranger." This, spoken in a cool, tranquil tone, was mortifying and baffling enough. Had I attended to the suggestions of pride and ire, I should immediately have left him. But something worked within me more strongly than those feelings could. I deeply venerated my cousin's talent and principle. His friendship was a value to me. To lose it tried me severely. I would not so soon relinquish the attempt to reconquer it. "'Must we part in this way, St. John? And when you go to India, will you leave me so, without a kinder word than you have yet spoken?' He now turned quite from the moon, and faced me. "'When I go to India, Jane, will I leave you? What? Do you not go to India?" "'You said I could not, unless I married you.' "'And you will not marry me? You adhere to that resolution?' "'Reader, do you know, as I do, what terror those cold people can put into the ice of their questions? How much of the fall of the avalanche is in their anger, of the breaking up of the frozen sea in their displeasure?' "'No. St. John, I will not marry you. I adhere to my resolution." The avalanche had shaken and slid a little forward, but it did not yet crash down. "'Once more, why this refusal?' he asked. "'Formerly,' I answered, "'because you did not love me. Now,' I reply, "'because you almost hate me. If I were to marry you, you would kill me. You are killing me now.' His lips and cheeks turned white quite white. I should kill you. I am killing you. Your words are such as ought not to be used—violent, unfeminine, and untrue. They betray an unfortunate state of mind. They merit severe reproof. They would seem inexcusable but that it is the duty of man to forgive his fellow even until seventy and seven times. I had finished the business now. While earnestly wishing to erase from his mind the trace of my former offence, I had stamped on that tenacious surface another and far deeper impression—I had burnt it in. "'Now you will indeed hate me,' I said. "'It is useless to attempt to conciliate you. I see I have made an eternal enemy of you.' A fresh wrong did these words inflict—the worse, because they touched on the truth. That bloodless lip quivered to a temporary spasm— I knew the steely ire I had wetted. I was heart-rung. "'You utterly misinterpret my words,' I said, at once seizing his hand. "'I have no intention to grieve or pain you—indeed, I have not!' Most bitterly he smiled, most decidedly he withdrew his hand from mine. "'And now you recall your promise, and will not go to India at all, I presume?' said he, after a considerable pause. "'Yes, I will—as your assistant,' I answered." A very long silence succeeded. What struggle there was in him between nature and grace in this interval, I cannot tell. Only singular gleams scintillated in his eyes, and strange shadows passed over his face. He spoke at last. "'I before proved to you the absurdity of a single woman of your age proposing to accompany abroad a single man of mine. I proved it to you in such terms as, I should have thought, would have prevented your ever again alluding to the plan. That you have done so, I regret, for your sake." I interrupted him. Anything like a tangible reproach gave me courage at once. Keep to common sense, St. John, you are verging on nonsense. You pretend to be shocked by what I have said. You are not really shocked, for with your superior mind you cannot be either so dull or so conceited as to misunderstand my meaning. I say again, I will be your curate, if you like, but never your wife." Again he turned lividly pale, but as before controlled his passion perfectly. He answered emphatically but calmly, "'A female curate, who is not my wife, would never suit me. With me, then, it seems you cannot go. But if you are sincere in your offer, I will, while in town, speak to a married missionary, whose wife needs a coadjutor. Your own fortune will make you independent of the Society's aid, and thus you may still be spared the dishonour of breaking your promise, and deserting the band you engaged to join." Now, I never had, as the reader knows, either given any formal promise, or entered into any engagement, and this language was all much too hard, and much too despotic for the occasion. I replied,—'There is no dishonour, no breach of promise, no desertion in the case. I am not under the slightest obligation to go to India, especially with strangers. With you I would have ventured much, because I admire, confide in, and as a sister I love you. But I am convinced that, go when and with whom I would, I should not live long in that climate." "'Ah! you are afraid of yourself?' he said, curling his lip. "'I am. God did not give me my life to throw away. And to do as you wish me, would, I begin to think, be almost equivalent to committing suicide. Moreover, before I definitively resolve on quitting England, I will know for certain whether I cannot be of greater use by remaining in it than by leaving it." "'What do you mean?' "'It would be fruitless to attempt to explain. But there is a point on which I have long endured painful doubt, and I can go nowhere till by some means that doubt is removed." "'I know where your heart turns, and to what it clings. The interest you cherish is lawless, and unconsecrated. Long since you ought to have crushed it, now you should blush to allude to it. You think of Mr. Rochester." It was true. I confessed it by silence. "'Are you going to seek Mr. Rochester?' "'I must find out what has become of him.' "'It remains for me, then,' he said, to remember you in my prayers and to entreat God for you in all earnestness that you may not indeed become a castaway. I had thought I recognised in you one of the chosen. But God sees not as man sees. His will be done." He opened the gate, passed through it, and strayed away down the glen. He was soon out of sight. On re-entering the parlour, I found Diana standing at the window, looking very thoughtful. Diana was a great deal taller than I. She put her hand on my shoulder, and stooping, examined my face. "'Jane,' she said, "'you are always agitated and pale now. I am sure there is something the matter. Tell me what business St. John and you have on hands. I have watched you this half-hour from the window. You must forgive my being such a spy, but for a long time I have fancied I hardly know what. St. John is a strange being.' She paused. I did not speak. Soon she resumed. That brother of mine cherishes peculiar views of some sort respecting you, I am sure. He has long distinguished you by a notice and interest he never showed to any one else. To what end? I wish he loved you. Does he, Jane?" I put her cool hand to my hot forehead. No, Di, not one whit. Then why does he follow you so with his eyes, and get you so frequently alone with him, and keep you so continually at his side? Mary and I had both concluded he wished you to marry him. He does. He has asked me to be his wife. Diana clapped her hands. Oh, that is just what we hoped and thought! And you will marry him, Jane, won't you? And then he will stay in England. Far from that, Diana. His sole idea in proposing to me is to procure a fitting fellow-labourer in his Indian toils. What? He wishes you to go to India? Yes." "'Madness!' she exclaimed. "'You would not live three months there, I am certain. "'You never shall go. "'You have not consented, have you, Jane?' "'I have refused to marry him.' "'And have consequently displeased him,' she suggested. "'Deeply. "'He will never forgive me, I fear. "'Yet I offered to accompany him as his sister.' "'It was frantic folly to do so, Jane. "'Think of the task you undertook one of incessant fatigue, where fatigue kills even the strong, and you are weak. St. John, you know him, would urge you to impossibilities. With him there would be no permission to rest during the hot hours, and unfortunately I have noticed, whatever he exacts, you force yourself to perform. I am astonished you found courage to refuse his hand. You do not love him then, Jane?" "'Not as a husband.' "'Yet he is a handsome fellow.' "'And I am so plain, you see, Di.—' We should never suit." "'Plain! You! Not at all. You are much too pretty, as well as too good, to be grilled alive in Calcutta." And again she earnestly conjured me to give up all thoughts of going out with her brother. "'I must indeed,' I said, for when just now I repeated the offer of serving him for a deacon, he expressed himself shocked at my want of decency. He seemed to think I had committed an impropriety in proposing to accompany him unmarried as if I had not from the first hoped to find in him a brother, and habitually regarded him as such." "'What makes you say he does not love you, Jane?' You should hear himself on the subject. He has again and again explained that it is not himself, but his office he wishes to mate. He has told me I am formed for labour, not for love—which is true, no doubt. But in my opinion, if I am not formed for love, it follows that I am not formed for marriage. Would it not be strange, Di, to be chained for life to a man who regarded one but as a useful tool? Insupportable! Unnatural! Out of the question!" And then, I continued, though I have only sisterly affection for him now, yet, if forced to be his wife, I can imagine the possibility of conceiving an inevitable, strange, torturing kind of love for him, because he is so talented, and there is often a certain heroic grandeur in his look, manner, and conversation. In that case my lot would become unspeakably wretched. He would not want me to love him, and if I showed the feeling, he would make me sensible that it was a superfluity, unrequired by him, unbecoming in me. I know he would." "'And yet St. John is a good man,' said Diana. "'He is a good, and a great man, but he forgets, pitilessly, the feelings and claims of little people in pursuing his own large views. It is better, therefore, for the insignificant to keep out of his way, lest in his progress he should trample them down. Here he comes. I will leave you, Diana." And I hastened upstairs, as I saw him entering the garden. But I was forced to meet him again at supper. During that meal he appeared just as composed as usual. I had thought he would hardly speak to me, and I was certain he had given up the pursuit of his matrimonial scheme. The sequel showed I was mistaken on both points. He addressed me precisely in his ordinary manner, or what had, of late, been his ordinary manner, one scrupulously polite. No doubt he had invoked the help of the Holy Spirit to subdue the anger I had roused in him, and now believed he had forgiven me once more. For the evening reading before prayers, he selected the twenty-first chapter of Revelation. It was at all times pleasant to listen, while from his lips fell the words of the Bible, Never did his fine voice sound at once so sweet and full, never did his manner become so impressive in its noble simplicity as when he delivered the oracles of God. And to-night, that voice took a more solemn tone, that manner a more thrilling meaning, as he sat in the midst of his household circle, the May moon shining in through the uncurtained window, and rendering almost unnecessary the light of the candle on the table. As he sat there, bending over the great old Bible, and described from its page the vision of the new heaven and new earth, told how God would come to dwell with men, how he would wipe away all tears from their eyes, and promised that there should be no more.
0: Last interruption of the show, just a reminder, everyone, that you can help support the show by going to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. Support the show, become a member of our beer cult, our t-shirt cult, or even get your ads on the show for a monthly fee. I've just made it that much easier so everyone else can get the same service that bunny slippers and found item clothing get. Remember to to rate, review, subscribe. Wherever you rate, review, subscribe, we are on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, we're... People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can support the show, keep the lights going, pay the fees that we need to pay so that we can keep this show going every damn day. All right, everyone, back to Jane Eyre. And remember, next week, we're going to have some Andrew Grace talking about Jane Eyre. And also, the week after this... Uh, we'll be doing Wuthering Heights. And we're gonna have Ken Height talking about Wuthering Heights. So double heights. All right, I hope you're not afraid of heights. Hey, Jane Eyre, right now, and no other ads for the rest of the show, because I love you. Thank you, bye. Thank you for listening. No more stuff, it's just dead air after this, I swear. All right, there, let's go. he sat there,
1: bending over the great old Bible and described from its page the vision of the new heaven and new earth, told how God would come to dwell with men how he would wipe away all tears from their eyes, and promise that there should be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, because the former things were passed away. The succeeding words thrilled me strangely as he spoke them, especially as I felt, by the slight, indescribable alteration in sound, that in uttering them, his eye had turned on me. "'He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God.' and he shall be my son. But, was slowly, distinctly read, the fearful, the unbelieving, etc., shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death." Henceforward, I knew what fate St. John feared for me. A calm, subdued triumph, blent with a longing earnestness, marked his enunciation of the last glorious verses of that chapter. The reader believed his name was already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he yearned after the hour which should admit him to the city to which the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour, which has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, because the glory of God lightens it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. In the prayer following the chapter, all his energy gathered. All his stern zeal woke. He was in deep earnest, wrestling with God, and resolved on a conquest. He supplicated strength for the weak-hearted, guidance for wanderers from the fold, a return, even at the eleventh hour, for those whom the temptations of the world and the flesh were luring from the narrow path. He asked, he urged, he claimed the boon of a brand snatched from the burning. Earnestness is ever deeply solemn. First as I listened to the prayer, I wondered at his. Then, when it continued and rose, I was touched by it, and at last awed. He felt the greatness and goodness of his purpose so sincerely. Others who heard him plead for it, could not but feel it too. The prayer over, we took leave of him. He was to go at a very early hour in the morning. Diana and Mary having kissed him, left the room, in compliance, I think, with a whispered hint from him. I tendered my hand, and wished him a pleasant journey. Thank you, Jane. As I said, I shall return from Cambridge in a fortnight. That space, then, is yet left to you for reflection. If I listen to human pride, I should say no more to you of marriage with me. But I listen to my duty, and keep steadily in view my very first aim, to do all things to the glory of God. My master was long suffering. So will I be. I cannot give you up to perdition as a vessel of wrath. Repent, resolve, or there is yet time. Remember, we are bid to work while it is day, warned that the night cometh when no man shall work. Remember the fate of Devis, who had his good things in this life. God give you strength to choose that better part which shall not be taken from you." He laid his hand on my head as he uttered the last words. He had spoken earnestly, mildly. His look was not indeed that of a lover beholding his mistress, but it was that of a pastor recalling his wandering sheep or better, of a guardian angel watching the soul for which he is responsible. All men of talent, whether they be men of feeling or not—whether they be zealots or aspirants or despots—provided only they be sincere—have their sublime moments when they subdue and rule. I felt veneration for St. John—veneration so strong that its impetus thrust me at once to the point I had so long shunned. I was tempted to cease struggling with him to rush down the torrent of his will into the gulf of his existence, and there lose my own. I was almost as hard beset by him now as I had been once before, in a different way, by another. I was a fool both times. To have yielded then would have been an error of principle, to have yielded now would have been an error of judgment. So I think, at this hour, when I look back to the crisis through the quiet medium of time, I was unconscious of folly at the instant. I stood motionless under my Hierophant's touch. My refusals were forgotten, my fears overcome, my wrestlings paralysed. The impossible, i.e., my marriage with St. John, was fast becoming the possible. All was changing utterly with a sudden sweep. Religion called, angels beckoned, God commanded. Life rolled together like a scroll, death's gates opening showed eternity beyond. It seemed that, for safety and bliss there, all here might be sacrificed in a second. The dim room was full of visions. "'Could you decide now?' asked the missionary. The inquiry was put in gentle tones. He drew me to him as gently. Oh, that gentleness! How far more potent is it than force! I could resist St. John's wrath. I grew pliant as a reed under his kindness yet I knew all the time, if I yielded now, I should not the less be made to repent, some day, of my former rebellion. His nature was not changed by one hour of solemn prayer, it was only elevated. "'I could decide if I were but certain,' I answered. "'Were I but convinced that it is God's will I should marry you, I could vow to marry you here and now. Come afterwards, what would?' "'My prayers are heard,' ejaculated St. John. He pressed his hand firmer on my head, as if he claimed me. He surrounded me with his arm, almost as if he loved me. I say almost, I knew the difference, for I had felt what it was to be loved. But like him, I had now put love out of the question, and thought only of duty. I contended with my inward dimness of vision, before which clouds yet rolled. I sincerely, deeply, fervently longed to do what was right, and only that. "'Show me! Show me the path!' I entreated of heaven. I was excited more than I had ever been, and whether what followed was the effect of excitement, the reader shall judge. All the house was still, for I believe all except St. John and myself were now retired to rest. The one candle was dying out, the room was full of moonlight. My heart beat fast and thick, I heard its throb. Suddenly it stood still to an inexpressible feeling that thrilled it through, and passed at once to my head and extremities. The feeling was not like an electric shock, but it was quite as sharp, as strange, as startling. It acted on my senses as if their utmost activity hitherto had been but torpor, from which they were now summoned and forced to wake. They rose expectant. Eye and ear waited while the flesh quivered on my bones. "'What have you heard? What do you see?' asked St. John. I saw nothing. But I heard a voice somewhere cry, "'Jane!' "'Jane! Jane!' Nothing more. "'Oh, God! what is it?' I gasped. I might have said, "'Where is it?' for it did not seem in the room, nor in the house, nor in the garden. It did not come out of the air, nor from under the earth, nor from overhead. I had heard it—where or whence, for impossible to know. And it was the voice of a human being—a known, loved, well-remembered voice That of Edward Fairfax Rochester, and it spoke in pain and woe, wildly, eerily, urgently. I am coming, I cried. Wait for me, oh, I will come. I flew to the door and looked into the passage. It was dark. I ran out into the garden. It was void. Where are you? I exclaimed. The hills beyond Marsh Glen sent the answer faintly back. Where are you? I listened. The wind sighed low in the firs—all was moorland, loneliness, and midnight hush. "'Downed superstition!' I commented, as that spectre rose up black by the black yew at the gate. "'This is not thy deception, nor thy witchcraft—it is the work of nature. She was roused and did—no miracle, but her best.' I broke from St. John, who had followed and would have detained me. It was my time to assume ascendancy—my powers were in play and in force. I told him to forbear question or remark—I desired him to leave me—I must and would be alone. He obeyed at once. Where there is energy to command well enough, obedience never fails. I mounted to my chamber, locked myself in, fell on my knees, and prayed in my way—a different way to St. John's, but effective in its own fashion. I seemed to penetrate very near a mighty spirit, and my soul rushed out in gratitude at his feet. I rose from the thanksgiving, took a resolve, and lay down unscared, enlightened, eager but for the daylight. End of chapter thirty five Recording by Elizabeth Clett Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter 36. The daylight came. I rose at dawn. I busied myself for an hour or two with arranging my things in my chamber, drawers and wardrobe, in the order wherein I should wish to leave them during a brief absence. Meantime I heard St. John quit his room. He stopped at my door. I feared he would knock. No, but a slip of paper was passed under the door. I took it up. It bore these words. "'You left me too suddenly last night. Had you stayed but a little longer, you would have laid your hand on the Christian's cross and the angel's crown. I shall expect your clear decision when I return this day fortnight. Meantime, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit, I trust, is willing, but the flesh, I see, is weak. I shall pray for you hourly. Yours, St. John.' "'My spirit,' I answered mentally is willing to do what is right, and my flesh, I hope, is strong enough to accomplish the will of heaven, when once that will is distinctly known to me. At any rate, it shall be strong enough to search, inquire, to grope an outlet from this cloud of doubt, and find the open day of certainty. It was the first of June. Yet the morning was overcast and chilly. Rain beat fast on my casement. I heard the front door open, and St. John pass out. Looking through the window, I saw him traverse the garden— He took the way over the misty moors in the direction of Whitcross. There, he would meet the coach. "'In a few more hours I shall succeed you in that track, cousin,' thought I. "'I, too, have a coach to meet at Whitcross. I, too, have some to seek and ask after in England, before I depart for ever.' It wanted yet two hours of breakfast-time. I filled the interval in walking softly about my room, and pondering the visitation which had given my plans their present bent. I recalled that inward sensation I had experienced, for I could recall it in all its unspeakable strangeness. I recalled the voice I had heard. Again I questioned whence it came, as vainly as before. It seemed in me, not in the external world. I asked was it a mere nervous impression, a delusion? I could not conceive or believe. It was more like an inspiration. The wondrous shock of feeling had come like the earthquake which shook the foundations of Paul and Silas's prison. It had opened the doors of the soul's cell, and loosed its bands. It had wakened it out of its sleep, whence it sprang trembling, listening, aghast. Then vibrated thrice a cry on my startled ear, and in my quaking heart and through my spirit, which neither feared nor shook, but exulted as if in joy over the success of one effort it had been privileged to make, independent of the cumbrous body ere many days, I said, as I terminated my musings, I will know something of him whose voice seemed last night to summon me. Letters have proved of no avail. Personal inquiry shall replace them. At breakfast, I announced to Diana and Mary that I was going a journey, and should be absent at least four days. Alone, Jane? they asked. Yes. It was to see or hear news of a friend about whom I had for some time been uneasy they might have said, as I have no doubt they thought, that they had believed me to be without friends save them, for indeed I had often said so. But with their true natural delicacy they abstained from comment, except that Diana asked me if I was sure I was well enough to travel. I looked very pale, she observed. I replied that nothing ailed me save anxiety of mind, which I hoped soon to alleviate. It was easy to make my further arrangements, for I was troubled with no inquiries, no surmises, Having once explained to them that I could not now be explicit about my plans, they kindly and wisely acquiesced in the silence with which I pursued them—according to me the privilege of free action I should under similar circumstances have accorded them. I left Moorhouse at three o'clock p.m., and soon after four I stood at the foot of the sign-post of Whitcross, waiting the arrival of the coach which was to take me to distant Thornfield. Amidst the silence of those solitary roads and desert hills, I heard it approach from the great distance. It was the same vehicle whence, a year ago, I had alighted one summer evening on this very spot—how desolate, and hopeless, and objectless! It stopped as I beckoned. I entered, not now obliged to part with my whole fortune as the price of its accommodation. Once more on the road to Thornfield, I felt like the messenger-pigeon flying home. It was a journey of six and thirty hours. I had set out from Whitcross on a Tuesday afternoon, and early on the succeeding Thursday morning the coach stopped to water the horses at a wayside inn, situated in the midst of scenery, whose green hedges and large fields and low pastoral hills—how mild a feature and verdant of hue compared with the stern North Midland moors of Morton—met my eye like the lineaments of a once-familiar face. Yes, I knew the character of this landscape. I was sure we were very near my bourne. "'How far is Thornfield Hall from here?' I asked of the ostler. "'Just two miles, mum, across the fields.' My journey is closed," I thought to myself. I got out of the coach, gave a box I had into the ostler's charge, to be kept till I called for it, paid my fare, satisfied the coachman, and was going. The brightening day gleamed on the sign of the inn, and I read in gilt letters the Rochester Arms. My heart leapt up—I was already on my master's very lands. It fell again—the thought struck it. Your master himself may be beyond the British Channel, for aught you know. And then, if he is at Thornfield Hall, towards which you hasten, who besides him is there? His lunatic wife! And you have nothing to do with him. You dare not speak to him, or seek his presence. You have lost your labour. You had better go no further," urged the Monitor. Ask information of the people at the inn. They can give you all you seek. They can solve your doubts at once. Go up to that man and inquire of Mr. Rochester-be at home." The suggestion was sensible, and yet I could not force myself to act on it. I so dreaded a reply that would crush me with despair. To prolong doubt was to prolong hope. I might yet once more see the hall under the ray of her star. There was the stile before me. The very fields through which I had hurried, blind, deaf, distracted, with revengeful fury tracking and scourging me, on the morning I fled from Thornfield. Ere I well knew what course I had resolved to take, I was in the midst of them. How fast I walked! How I ran sometimes! How I looked forward to catch the first view of the well-known woods! With what feelings I welcomed single trees I knew, and familiar glimpses of meadow and hill between them! At last the woods rose. The rookery clustered dark. A loud cawing broke the morning stillness. Strange delight inspired me. On I hastened. Another field crossed, a lane threaded, and there were the courtyard walls, the back offices, the house itself, the rookery still hid. My first view of it shall be in front, I determined, where its bold battlements will strike the eye nobly at once, and where I can single out my master's very window. Perhaps he will be standing at it. He rises early. Perhaps he is now walking in the orchard, or on the pavement in front. Could I but see him? But a moment! Surely in that case I should not be so mad as to run to him. I cannot tell. I am not certain. And if I did, what then? God bless him! What then? Who would be hurt by my once more tasting the life his glance can give me? I rave! Perhaps at this moment he is watching the sunrise over the Pyrenees, or on the tideless sea of the south." I had coasted along the lower wall of the orchard, turned its angle. There was a gate just there, opening into the meadow, between two stone pillars, crowned by stone balls. From behind, one pillar, I could peep round quietly at the full front of the mansion. I advanced my head with precaution, desirous to ascertain if any bedroom window-blinds were yet drawn up. Battlements, windows, long front, all from this sheltered station were at my command. The crows sailing overhead perhaps watched me while I took this survey. I wonder what they thought. They must have considered I was very careful and timid at first, and that gradually I grew very bold and reckless. A peep, and then a long stare, and then a departure from my niche into straying out into the meadow, and a sudden stop full in front of the great mansion— and a protracted, hardy gaze towards it. What affectation of diffidence was this at first, they might have demanded? What stupid regardlessness now! Here an illustration, reader. A lover finds his mistress asleep on a mossy bank. He wishes to catch a glimpse of her fair face without waking her. He steals softly over the grass, careful to make no sound. He pauses, fancying she has stirred. He withdraws. Not for worlds would he be seen. All is still. He again advances. He bends above her. A light veil rests on her features. He lifts it, bends lower. Now his eyes anticipate the vision of beauty, warm and blooming, and lovely in rest. How hurried was their first glance! But how they fix! How he starts! How he suddenly and vehemently clasps in both arms the form he dared not a moment since touch with his finger! How he calls aloud a name, and drops his burden, and gazes on it wildly! He thus grasps and cries and gazes, because he no longer fears to waken by any sound he can utter, by any movement he can make. He thought his love slept sweetly. He finds she is stone dead. I looked with timorous joy towards a stately house. I saw a blackened ruin. No need to cower behind a gate-post, indeed—to peep up at chamber lattices, fearing life was astir behind them. No need to listen for doors opening, to fancy steps on the pavement or the gravel-walk. The lawn the gardens were trodden and waste—the portal yawned void. The front was, as I had once seen it in a dream, but a well-like wall, very high and very fragile-looking, perforated with painless windows. No roof, no battlements, no chimneys—all had crashed in. And there was the silence of death about it—the solitude of a lonesome wild. No wonder that letters addressed to people here had never received an answer—as well dispatch epistles to a vault in a church aisle. The grim blackness of the stones told by what fate the hall had fallen—by conflagration. But how kindled! What story belonged to this disaster? What loss, besides mortar and marble and woodwork, had followed upon it? Had life been wrecked, as well as property? If so, whose? Dreadful question! There was no one here to answer it—not even dumb sign, mute token. In wandering round the shattered walls and through the devastated interior, I gathered evidence that the calamity was not of late occurrence. Winter snows, I thought, had drifted through that void arch—winter rains beaten in at those hollow casements for amidst the drenched piles of rubbish, spring had cherished vegetation—grass and weed grew here and there between the stones and fallen rafters. And, oh! where, meantime, was the hapless owner of this wreck? In what land? Under what auspices? My eye involuntarily wandered to the grey church-tower near the gates, and I asked, Is he with Damer de Rochester sharing the shelter of his narrow marble house?" Some answer must be had to these questions. I could find it nowhere but at the inn, and thither ere long I returned. The host himself brought my breakfast into the parlour. I requested him to shut the door and to sit down. I had some questions to ask him. But when he complied, I scarcely knew how to begin. Such horror had I of the possible answers. And yet the spectacle of desolation I had just left prepared me in a measure for a tale of misery. The host was a respectable-looking middle-aged man." "'You know Thornfield Hall, of course,' I managed to say at last. "'Yes, ma'am. I lived there once.' "'Did you?' "'Not in my time, I thought. You are a stranger to me.' "'I was the late Mr. Rochester's butler,' he added. "'The late!' I seemed to have received with full force the blow I had been trying to evade. "'The late!' I gasped. "'Is he dead?' "'I mean, the present gentleman, Mr. Edward's father.' he explained. I breathed again, my blood resumed its flow, fully assured by these words that Mr. Edward, my Mr. Rochester—God bless him, wherever he was—was at least alive, was in short the present gentleman. Gladdening words! It seemed I could hear all that was to come, whatever the disclosures might be, with comparative tranquillity. Since he was not in the grave, I could bear, I thought, to learn he was at the Antipodes. "'Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield Hall now?' I asked knowing, of course, what the answer would be, but yet desirous of deferring the direct question as to where he really was. No, Mum. Oh no, no one is living there. I suppose you are a stranger in these parts, so you would have heard what happened last autumn. Thornfield Hall is quite a ruin. It was burned down just about harvest time. A dreadful calamity. Such an immense quantity of valuable property destroyed. Hardly any of the furniture could be saved. The fire broke out at dead of night and before the engines arrived from Millcote, the building was one mass of flame It was a terrible spectacle—I witnessed it myself." "'At dead of night,' I muttered. "'Yes, that was ever the hour of fatality at Thornfield. Was it known how it originated?' I demanded. "'They guessed, ma'am, they guessed. Indeed, I should say it was ascertained, beyond a doubt. "'You are not perhaps aware,' he continued, edging his chair a little nearer the table and speaking low, "'that there was a lady, uh, a—a lunatic—' kept in the house?" "'I have heard something of it.' "'She was kept in very close confinement, ma'am. People even for some years were not absolutely certain of her existence. No one saw her. They only knew by rumour that such a person was at the hall, and who or what she was, it was difficult to conjecture. They say Mr. Edward had brought her from abroad, and some believed she had been his mistress. But a queer thing happened a year since—a very queer thing.' I feared now to hear my own story. I endeavoured to recall him to the main fact. "'And this lady—' "'This lady, ma'am,' he answered, turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. The discovery was brought about in the strangest way. There was a young lady, a governess at the hall, that Mr. Rochester fell in—but the fire,' I suggested—'I'm coming to that, ma'am, that Mr. Edward fell in love with. The servants say they never saw anybody so much in love as he was. He was after her continually. They used to watch him servants, will you know, ma'am, and he set store on her past everything. For all, nobody but him thought her so very handsome. She was a little small thing, they say, almost like a child. I never saw her myself, but I've heard Leah, the housemaid, tell of her. Leah liked her well enough. Mr. Rochester was about forty, and this governess not twenty, and you see, when gentlemen of his age fall in love with girls, they are often as like as if they were bewitched. Well, he would marry her." "'You shall tell me this part of the story another time,' I said. But now I have particular reason for wishing to hear all about the fire. Was it suspected that this lunatic—Mrs. Rochester—had any hand in it?" "'You've hit it, ma'am. It's quite certain that it was her, and nobody but her, that set it going. She had a woman to take care of her called Mrs. Poole—an able woman in her line, and very trustworthy—but for one fault—a fault common to a deal of them nurses and matrons. She kept a private bottle of gin by her, and now and then took a drop overmuch. It is excusable, for she had a hard life of it. But still, it was dangerous, for when Mrs. Poole was fast asleep after the gin and water, the mad lady, who was as cunning as a witch, would take the keys out of her pocket, and let herself out of her chamber, and go roaming about the house doing any wild mischief that came into her head. They say she had nearly burnt her husband in his bed once, but I don't know about that. However, on this night, she set fire first to the hangings of the room next her own, and then she got down to a lower storey, and made her way to the chamber that had been the governess's. She was like as if she knew somehow matters had gone on, and had a spite at her. And she kindled the bed there, but there was nobody sleeping in it, fortunately. The governess had run away two months before, and for all Mr. Rochester sought her as if she had been the most precious thing he had in the world, he never could hear a word of her, and he grew savage, quite savage, on his disappointment. He never was a wild man, but he got dangerous after he lost her. He would be alone, too. He sent Mrs. Fairfax, the housekeeper, away to her friends at a distance— But he did it handsomely, for he settled an annuity on her for life, and she deserved it—she was a very good woman. Miss Adele, a ward he had, was put to school. He broke off acquaintance with all the gentry, and shut himself up like a hermit at the hall." "'What? Did he not leave England?' "'Leave England? Bless you, no! He would not cross the door-stones of the house, except at night, when he walked just like a ghost about the grounds and in the orchard, as if he had lost his senses—which, it is my opinion, he had for a more spirited, bolder, keener gentleman than he was before that midge of a governess crossed him you never saw, Mum. He was not a man given to wine, or cards, or racing, as some are, and he was not so very handsome, but he had a courage and a will of his own, if ever man had. I knew him from a boy, you see, and for my part I have often wished that Miss Eyre had been sunk in the sea before she came to Thornfield Hall." Then Mr. Rochester was at home when the fire broke out. Yes, indeed was he. And he went up to the attics, and all was burning above and below, and got the servants out of their beds, and helped them down himself, and went back to get his mad wife out of her cell. And then they called out to him that she was on the roof, and where she was standing, waving her arms above the battlements, and shouting out till they could hear her a mile off. I saw her, and heard her with my own eyes. She was a big woman, and had long black hair. We could see it streaming against the flames as she stood. I witnessed, and several more witnessed, Mr. Rochester ascend through the skylight to the roof. We heard him call Bertha. We saw him approach her. And then, Mum, she yelled and gave a spring, and the next minute she lay smashed on the pavement. "'Dead?' "'Dead! Ay, dead as the stones on which her brains and blood were scattered. "'Good God!' "'You may well say so, ma'am. It was frightful.' He shuddered. "'And afterwards?' I urged. "'Well, ma'am, afterwards the house was burnt to the ground. There are only some bits of wool standing now.' "'Were any other lives lost?' "'No. Perhaps it would have been better if there had.' "'What do you mean?' "'Poor Mr. Edward,' he ejaculated. "'I little thought ever to have seen it. Some say it was a just judgment on him for keeping his first marriage secret, and wanting to take another wife while he had one living but I pity him for my part." "'You said he was alive?' I exclaimed. "'Yes, yes, he is alive, but many think he had better be dead.' "'Why? How?' My blood was again running cold. "'Where is he?' I demanded. "'Is he in England?' Ay, aye, he's in England. He can't get out of England, I fancy he's a fixture now.' What agony was this, and the man seemed resolved to protract it." "'He is stone-blind he said at last. Yes, he is stone blind, is Mr. Redwood." I had dreaded worse—I had dreaded he was mad. I summoned strength to ask what had caused this calamity. It was all his own courage, and a body may say his kindness in a way, ma'am. He wouldn't leave the house till every one else was out before him. As he came down the great staircase at last, after Mrs. Rochester had flung herself from the battlements, there was a great crash—all fell. He was taken out from under the ruins—alive, but sadly hurt. A beam had fallen in such a way as to protect him partly, but one eye was knocked out, and one hand so crushed that Mr. Carter the surgeon had to amputate it directly. The other eye inflamed—he lost the sight of that also. He is now helpless indeed—blind and a cripple." "'Where is he—where does he live now?' "'At Ferndean, a manor-house on a farm he has, about thirty miles off quite a desolate spot. "'Who is with him?' "'Old John and his wife. He would have none else. He is quite broken down, they say.' "'Have you any sort of conveyance?' "'We have a chaise, ma'am, a very handsome chaise. Let it be got ready instantly, and if your postboy can drive me to Ferndean before dark this day, I'll pay both you and him twice the hire you usually demand.'" End of chapter 36